0: Good morning, everybody. Pastor Chris here. Good to have you. Ashton and Justin, thank you for hosting us this morning. Hey, I wanted to let you guys know, uh, next week we're starting something brand new. I want you all to be prepared for it. It's going to be a study of the parables of the kingdom. It's going to be a a study of how Jesus actually challenges and upends our long-held Christian ideas, messes with some of our expectations. And most of our life groups, uh, Justin forgot to mention this, most of our life groups are actually going to be doing a study that corresponds to this new sermon series. So definitely want to get in a life group so that you can be following along and doing a deep dive with us on those parables. That starts next Sunday. Today, grab your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter. I want to pose a question to you as we kick off the third part of our series, No Condemnation. It's the ridiculous reality found only in Jesus. It's a three-part study of Romans chapter 8. And here's the question I want to pose to you today. Does everything really happen for a reason? Does everything really happen for a reason? Have you ever heard somebody say that? Of course you've heard somebody say that. Somebody has probably said that to you after a very difficult time, maybe even after a loss or a tragedy, and you wanted to punch them, like you wanted to knock them out, maybe even do worse to them, because it was just like it's so insensitive, like, what? come on, I just want you to feel the pain with me. But then maybe you also made the mistake of saying it to somebody else after they went through a tragedy. We say these things because there's something in us that wants to believe it. We want to believe that there's purpose and that there's meaning to our pain, meaning to our loss, meaning to our tragedies. Uh, But the question is, is it true? Is it true? true? Does the Bible say that is true? Does the Bible actually back it up and say, no, no, you can count on this, that everything really does happen for a reason? Or is it just our uh, tendency to want to uh, slap a label on our pain and put it in a category and file it away and, and and you know, tie it up with a neat little bow and go, there we go. That's why that happened. And it's still painful, but I, but I can now grieve with a degree of closure because now there's purpose to it. Is that all it is? Is just something inside of us Psychologically, or does the Bible actually promise that all things happen, that everything happens for a reason? So, in this part three of No Condemnation, uh, so far, I want to just recap real quick what we've covered so far. What we've covered so far is that because of Jesus, actually, let's look at Romans 8 1 again. This is what we're really doing a deep dive into Romans 8:1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus basically the rest of Romans 8 is us unpacking what that means what it means to not be under condemnation what it means to be in Christ Jesus so we've talked about how being in Christ Jesus means we trade in our flimsy, pathetic report cards, right, that where we boast in our religious activities, we boast in our church going, we boast in our good deeds, we trade that in, we say, God, I recognize that this falls incredibly short, and I grab hold of Jesus' report card, his sacrifice on my behalf, I trust in him and him alone for my salvation. That would, that's what it means to be in Christ Jesus, and when we're in Christ Jesus, There's nothing left to prove. The pressure's off. That's what we talked about week one. Last week, we looked at how then we get the spirit of Jesus living in us. It's the spirit of adoption that that gives us the, the confidence to cry out to God as our father, as our dada, and go, you know what? Dada, you've got this. I, I don't have the answers to this, but you've, you do. I can trust you. Uh, and then we also talked about how that spirit gives us the desire to want what God wants and to put to death what doesn't belong, in our, the, the, the sin nature in us. That God gives us the desire to put that down. And then we touched on, we can only touch on it last week, was our suffering and our pain and how being in Christ Jesus gives us a new perspective on our pain and suffering. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in a little bit more on the pain and suffering. And again, we're going to address this question. Does everything really happen for a reason? As we get going, I want to pray. Hmm. Lord, I pray that you would just kind of give me the words to articulate what you want to say we ask that you would speak to people we ask that you would challenge hearts encourage hearts lift up hearts inspire hearts to see jesus for who jesus is in a greater way to understand that for those in christ jesus all that we get and for those who are not in Christ Jesus, for those who haven't trusted in you, that they would do so today. That there would be a handful of people today who say, you know what, I'm trading in my flimsy report card. I'm a, I'm a trust in Jesus. I want to be in Christ Jesus. Anoint this message, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, does everything one more time. This is what we're addressing. Does everything really happen for a reason? We say it. People say it. We want to believe it. But is it true? The verse in the Bible that is primarily used to back up this claim is found in this chapter of Romans, verse 28, where it says this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay. That's the verse that is most often used to make the claim, everything happens for a reason. Is that what this verse is saying? To understand if that's what this verse is saying, we have to ask a few questions about this verse. We're going to start with this question. What is meant by all things? God causes all things to work together. What is meant by all things? Well, when you look it up in the Greek, what it means is, all things. It means actually all things. It means circumstances. It means the pain inflicted on us by other people. It means our own sins that we do against others, our sins against God. It means all things. It means where you grew up. It means how you were raised. It means whether or not you went to college. It means whether or not you dropped out of college. It means uh, the bullying that you went through in elementary school. It even means the bullying that you inflicted on someone else in middle school because of the bullying that you took in elementary school it means all things all things are included in all things it is your good marriage it is your difficult marriage it is even your divorce all things is all things but the next question what does work together mean see how it says verse 28 we know that God calls us all things to work together what does it mean to work together. Well, that idea, that idea is to be summed up together. To, for, for things to be put together and summed up together. So, if, if somebody asks, I want to show you a quick whiteboard. If somebody asked, or, or somebody said, Chris and Jess, that's my wife, work really well together. See that? See that? Are they saying, can you deduce, that what they mean is that Chris on his own works well, or that Jess on her own works well? No, you cannot deduce that. You can only surmise that what they mean is that Chris plus Jess summed up together work really well. Whether or not Chris works well on his own, in other words, whether or not Jess works well on her own is an entirely different issue. Let me give you another example. I'm a numbers guy, so I like math. 2 plus 3 equals 5, right? We know this. If somebody said God causes 2 plus 3 to equal 5, does that mean that God is calling 2 5? Or that he's calling 3 5 on its own? No. 2 does not equal 5, and 3 does not equal 5. It's only 2 plus 3, which equals 5. So when Paul says here that God causes all things to work together, he's talking about when they are summed up together. He's not saying that God takes a, an, an evil that's inflicted upon us and simply calls it good. That's not what this verse is saying. It's not saying that that childhood abuse that you went through or that cancer that you're dealing with, that God's saying, don't worry, just just believe that this is a lemon that I'm going to flip into lemonade. That's not what it's saying. Those are evil things. We live in a broken world where Satan is allowed to roam around. And on their own, cancer or childhood abuse or a betrayal from a friend or divorce, that's not good. It's tough stuff. That's tragic stuff. And so it's not true. According to this passage, you can't say that this one hardship in and of itself is is good, or that it'll even turn out for good. That's not what this verse is promising. We have to understand this, or we're gonna say shallow, superficial, cliche things to each other that end up being insensitive and don't represent God's heart. The Bible tells us to mourn with those who mourn. It doesn't tell us to try to get those who are mourning to slap on a positive smile and just tell themselves that God's gonna turn this lemon into lemonade. We are called to mourn with those who mourn. When we receive sickness, we are not to passively say, well, guess God is just teaching me some kind of lesson. passively accept it no we're to obey scripture which says you sick call the elders to pray over you anointing you with oil confessing your sins to each other that you may be healed that's what James 5 tells us we're to believe for healing we're to take our stand against the Satan the accuser who comes against us in this life when an injustice happens we're to take a stand against it try to fight against it now we gotta put a stop to this when your marriage is falling apart, you don't passively go, well, God's just going to make this work out somehow. We're to say, I got to do something about this. I got to take a stand against this. I got to get some counseling. I got to work on my, my, my junk. I got to work on my issues. I got to make sure I'm doing my part to be faithful, to fight against the brokenness that's trying to tear our marriage apart. Any one thing in and of itself is not to be passively accepted as good. But we do live in a broken world that has been subjected to a curse. And so these things are going to come against us. I want to look back in this passage in verse 19 of Romans 8, where it tells us why we struggle, why we deal with hardships. Let's look at it. It says this, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So all of creation, it's saying, is broken. It was subjected to a curse. It, it's, it's fractured. It's fractured. The first sin entered the world and everything under the domain of those first human beings that they were supposed to be in charge of, everything under their rule was fractured. And, 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 man, you look around 2020, you look around our world, what a perfect picture of how broken our world is, how cursed it is. The pandemic, the, the polarization, the, the, the looting in the streets, police officers being shot, uh, left and I mean, just injustices left and right. There's, there's things going on in this world that remind us on a daily basis this world has been subjected to a curse. But look again. Look what it says. In hope— in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So it's, it's, it's subjected to this curse, but there's this, there's this sense in which the creation is, 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 is longing for this freedom from decay from the brokenness. Look at what Paul says next in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Groaning, longing like the pains of childbirth. So when you're in childbirth, you're you're, you're in pain, but it's a kind of pain where it's a precursor to something better. Something good's coming. Something good's coming. And Paul's saying the creation is groaning. The hurricanes... The, the, the tornadoes, uh, when, when, when the tsunami comes and wreaks havoc on a village, it's, it's groaning, but it's groaning because it's, it's a precursor to something better. It's a precursor to something that's coming, a freedom that is to come, but is not here yet. And then Paul says in verse twenty-three, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our body. So not only is all of creation growing, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, he, that's a reference to those who are in Christ. He's saying those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we've got we've got this spirit living in us, and we as well we grown. Inwardly, okay. So we 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 groan with the rest of creation, with brokenness of this world, for a future glory that is to come. When it says the spirit is the first fruits, the first fruits is is um it's a reference to you know the harvest, the first crops that came up were the first fruits. And they were a sign that there's more coming. Oh, look, they're coming up. You know, we had cucumbers in our garden. Oh, look, first cucumber came up. It's working. There's more seeds in here. There's got to be more cucumbers coming up. There's got to be more eggplant coming up. And that's the idea here. We've, We've got the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is a down payment of our future glory. The future glory that we're going to get one day when Jesus returns, we get a down payment of that now. The Spirit in us. Now, the spirit is our hope of glory. It's a foretaste. It's a it's a it's a hint of what we're getting later. So we're waiting for something better, but we're not waiting on our own. We're waiting with the first fruits of the spirit with a down payment. This is why, very important. This is why we can expect and believe for miracles in the here and now. This is why we can expect and believe for healing in here. The here and now. This is why we can expect and believe for God to break into the here and now with hints and foretastes and uh, I like to call them movie trailers of the future glory that will be revealed. God loves such this is what it's gonna be like. Here's healing to your body, this is what it's gonna be like one day when you get those new glorious bodies so we get the first fruits of the spirit so when anxiety comes against us we've got the spirit in us so we can go no 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 i'm not going to let this control me i'm going to i'm going to take authority over it i've got access to god's peace even in the midst of this anxiety I've I've got access to God's joy even in the midst of pain, so we've got the first fruits of the Spirit. Um, but there is a, still a sense in which we are groaning with the rest of creation for something better, and that's okay to groan. But we groan. Look again at that last verse. We groan with an eager expectation. Grown eagerly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Life hurts. When people ask me, Chris, why does a good God allow so much evil? My answer is, I don't know exactly why he allows any particular evil, but it's only for a matter of time. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption To sonship, the redemption of our bodies, our ultimate freedom. Now, look again at that verse. If you remember, the first two weeks we talked about how we are adopted. When we trust in Jesus, we get adopted into God's family. Here Paul is saying that we're waiting eagerly for our adoption to sonship. So, what's the deal, Chris? What's the deal, Apostle Paul? Have we been adopted? Or are we eagerly awaiting for our adoption? Which is it? You're contradicting yourself. Well, to kind of explain, because it's a little bit of both. There's a sense in which it's both. When you buy a house, and you close on that house, and you're sitting down at the bank, close on the house, is the house yours? Yeah, it's yours. You own the house now. You get the keys. It's yours. Or is it yours when you fully move into the house and renovate and make it the way you want it to be? Well, and it's really yours. It's a little bit of both, isn't it? It's a little bit of both. There's a sense in which it's yours when you close on the house, but then it's really yours when you move into the house and you're sleeping there. And that's the kind of idea here. Uh, another example. Um, my aunt and Uncle Day, uh, my aunt, Mary and Uncle Dave, uh, when they uh, uh, adopted my two cousins from Colombia, when they went took the final trip to Bogota, and they got those children, you know, each at different times. Uh, they they got their son, they got their daughter, and, and they got them on the plane, and they're they're officially adopted. Were they adopted? Yes, of course. But there was a sense in which not until they were home and brought those babies into their new house and said. This is where you're going to live. Did those children receive the fullness of that adoption? Make sense? So while they were traveling on the plane, those kids were theirs. they were adopted. But those kids didn't receive the fullness of that adoption until they were home. It's the same idea for us. We're adopted into God's family. We've got the first fruits of the Spirit. The Father's with us at all times. It's kind of like we're on that plane. We're we're waiting. We're waiting for that full inheritance to be revealed. What does Paul call it? Adoption to sonship. Look at it again. Look at it again. Adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. To sonship is is a reference to the inheritance that goes to the firstborn son. In that time, the inheritance, biggest part, went to the firstborn son. Jesus is the firstborn son. He, he gives us What he deserves, not what we deserve, what he deserves when we trust in him. So we are awaiting the fullness of our inheritance as little brothers and sisters of of our older brother, Jesus. We're waiting to be brought into that full adoption. And, and, And gosh, man, that's going to be a time when we don't need to pray and stand against sickness and stand against anxiety and stand against injustice because those things will be completely eradicated. The very presence of those things. Revelation tells us every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more crying or pain. Uh, Our bodies, will get new bodies and we'll be able to enjoy God, revel in God's glory in a way that we can't now. Like even on our best days now, these bodies, these faculties can't enjoy God, can't worship God, can't take in God's glory as we should be able to. Give you an example. When I go to the beach, I look at the ocean and I go, wow so big and massive and it reminds me of how awesome God is. And I, I point out to my girls, look guys, look how big that ocean is. You know who's even bigger? Who made that ocean? God made that ocean. And I, and I, and I revel in it for a moment. But eventually it wears off. Eventually it gets old. And I, I'm like, I don't see the glory of God anymore. It gets old. It lasts for a few minutes. Uh, when I look at my kids sometimes playing and I'm like, wow, God, you made these kids. You, you gave them to us and you created them. And I'm like, wow, God. And then it gets old. <laughs> and it gets old after a little bit. Like, oh, well, anyway, that's what it's like. One day. When we're receiving the full inheritance, we've got new bodies. We've got minds and eyes to really see God in his fullness. And we're living on a new earth. Man, I believe we're going to look at a blade of grass and go, wow, God did that. Holy mackerel. And it's just going to fill us with this wonder and worship. I can't wait for that day. That's the full inheritance. That's our full adoption to sonship. But until then, there is an ache in, in our souls. In the meantime, we groan. We we groan. We experience disappointment. We experience loss. We experience misunderstanding. We experience frustration. And we groan inwardly. But it's not the kind of groaning where we uh, groan in a grumbling, complainy, self-pity kind of way. It's a groaning uh, where uh, we uh, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly in hope for our future adoption it's like yes there's more to come so we don't grumble and complain on one hand but we don't try to slap on a positive smile on the other hand and just say well god's just gonna turn this lemon into lemonade no it's okay to groan as long as we groan as those who have the first fruits of the spirit it's okay to groan as long as we groan as those who have the first fruits of the spirit. So this verse 828, Romans 828, where it says, "We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose." He's talking about all things when taking in their totality. All things taken in their totality when they're summed up, not taking each individual piece of evil and saying, well, we're going to call this good. It's not what it's saying. So back to our question. Does this verse say that everything happens for a reason? So far, what we can conclude from what we've talked about and and, and dissected so far is that everything that happens works together for good, but what is the good Paul is talking about? What's the good? Okay? Okay. That's the next question we have to address. When people say this cliche, oh, everything happens for a reason, usually what they're referring to is a circumstantial good. You know, your your, uh, car broke down, don't worry, God's got a better car waiting around the corner. That relationship ended, don't worry, God's got a better boyfriend somewhere working. You know, he's just Prince Charm is going to jump out of nowhere. You watch. You know, God closes the door, he's got a window It's going to pop open somewhere, right? That's kind of how we think of it. You know, you, you lost your job, oh, don't worry, God's got a better job. It's a perfect fit for you. Your dream job is right around the corner. Don't worry, it's coming for you. That's usually how we how we think about it. Is that what this verse is promising? Is that what it's saying? Now, no doubt, sometimes that's the case. God's a blesser. God's a blesser. No doubt that's sometimes the case. But is that what this verse is promising? Well, thankfully, we don't have to wonder. We can get the answer to that question by looking at the very next verse. In verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, that's God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that's Jesus, so that he, that's Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. So this is what it's telling us. If God causes all things to work together for good, and we're left to wonder, well, what's that good? Oh, there it is to be conformed to the image of his son, to be conformed, molded, shaped into the image of Jesus so that Jesus would be the firstborn, the older brother, the first one to conquer the grave, the first one to burst out in resurrection life of many younger brothers and sisters, or little Christs. That's what the word Christian originally referred to. Little Christs, little brothers and sisters, you and me, who are being molded and shaped into the image of Jesus, our older brother, who look like him. Everything is being worked together to make us more like Jesus, day by day, so that at the end, we look like our older brother. We're shining with the glory of the resurrected Savior. Now, you might be thinking, or at least feeling, If we're honest with ourselves, this is what we feel. Because we think in our heads, well, that sounds good. Of course I want to be like Jesus. I'm supposed to be like Jesus. It's the right answer. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we're back of our minds. We're like, but I also want to be happy. I also want to enjoy life. can I get a little bit of both? Because sometimes they feel mutually exclusive. Well, Scripture actually tells us that not only are they not mutually exclusive... Not only is becoming more like Jesus and our joy not mutually exclusive, but they are inseparably tied together. You cannot become more joyful without becoming more like Jesus. You cannot become more like Jesus without becoming more joyful. I'm talking about true joy here, not the kind of joy that can be taken away, or gets threatened because somebody else is having a bad day, that's not true joy. I'm talking about true joy that's rooted in Jesus, his resurrection, his conquering of the grave, his establishing of a new kingdom that's going to go on and on and on and on and on that we get to belong to. If a joy that's rooted in that is established, then that joy cannot be taken away. The joy that's rooted in the things of this world, however, can be taken away. The things that's rooted in the brokenness or or the things that are inside the brokenness of this world underneath this curse, well, that stuff can be taken away. That stuff gets threatened all the time. Hurricane Sandy's come. Uh, Best friends, stop talking to us and don't even tell us why. And then start talking smack about us behind our backs. Uh, Pandemics come. We lose our dream jobs. That kind of stuff can get taken away. And and again, God blesses us with circumstantial good, but if our joy is rooted in those things or is uh, dependent on those things, uh, then it's not really a healthy, strong joy. But when our joy is rooted in Jesus and his kingdom, oh, that's a joy that can't be stolen. And what God is determined to do is work all things together to make us more and more like Jesus so that our joy is established in Jesus, in his kingdom, and, and, and that we become more joyful, more peaceful people as we become more like Jesus, as we become more humble. In other words, God wants us, because he loves us so much, he wants us to become more like Jesus so that we don't need things to be fair in order to be happy. We don't need everybody to like us all the time in order to have peace. Uh, We don't need to get things our way every day in order for us to rejoice. You see? We can become slower to be offended, slower to be threatened, slower to, to get ticked off, quicker to pray, Quicker to respond with humility, with joy, with peace to situations. That's what God is determined to do in us. That's God's ultimate goal. That's the best good of all. When it says to be conformed to the image of Jesus, that God works all things together for our good, that's the best good that God is committed to in us. To become more like Jesus. Everything works together for the reason, the ultimate reason, to make us more and more like Jesus. That's the answer so far to our question, does everything happen for a reason? Everything works together for the reason, the ultimate reason, to make us more and more like Jesus. On one condition. On one condition. And that brings us to our last question. Who is this promise for. Notice, it says in verse 28 right there, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say to those whom God loves, because God loves everybody. God loves the entire world that he gave his only son. The entire world, however, doesn't love God. The entire world is not adopted into God's family. The entire world hasn't trusted in Jesus. The entire world doesn't have the spirit of God living in them. This promise is only for those who have been set free from condemnation and who have the spirit of adoption. And therefore, because of that spirit of adoption, love God. Love God and go, God. I want to become more like you. I want to become more like Jesus. I trust that that's where true joy is found. I trust that that's where true peace is found. Becoming more like Jesus, I want that. That's who this promise is for. And you might say to me, "But Chris, what about that? Those who aren't Christians? Are you saying that everything doesn't work together for good for them?" Yeah, that's what this verse is saying. That's what it's saying. And I know that sounds harsh. That bothers me when I say it out loud. It makes me bristle. But think about it. And let's think logically about it. Why would someone who is not in Christ, who rejects Jesus and his sacrifice and says, I don't need that. I got my own report card. I got my own spirituality. I'm good. Why would somebody who rejects that want to have a joy rooted in that Jesus? They wouldn't. Why would they want to become more like that Jesus? They wouldn't. See, if you, I'm going to jump to a movie analogy, okay? I like movies. This, this, this might help you understand this. It might make it sound better, feel better, uh, become more clear. If you watch a movie, a good movie, by the end of that movie, you can look back at every scene and go, oh, I understand why that scene was in there. I understand how that scene either moved the plot forward or revealed character. That's what every scene in a movie is supposed to do. Move the plot forward, reveal character. And you can look back at the end of the movie and go, ah, I get it now. You, it might not make sense in the middle. In the middle of the movie, you might see a scene where somebody you know gives a, a box to this person and a stranger walks away. And you're like, what was that box about? But by the end of the movie, you go, oh, that's what that box was about. That's why that box was back there. It makes sense. If you watch a bad movie, a lot of times there's scenes that don't make sense. What the heck was that for? The director had, you know, wanted to put in some shock value. The producer had a niece that he wanted to get their acting career started, so "Eh, don't don't give him a scene, give him some dialogue, something like that. It's like it doesn't even make sense, doesn't fit. Well, see, God is telling a perfect story, and by the end of it, all things are going to be summed up under Christ as the King. That's His story. That's what it's about. That's where all things are headed. That's where His movie is headed towards. God is not about, if, 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 if you're rejecting Jesus and you're like, I don't want to live according to that story. I want to live where I'm at the center. I want to live where, w- according to the story where I'm the king. I'm the king of my own story, right? I'm the captain of my own ship. If that's the story you're choosing to live according to, God is not committed to that story. He's not committed to that story. He's telling his story. He's not committed to that story. He made, he made no promises to go, oh, I'll help you tell that movie. No, 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 no. He's committed to his story. He's committed to his story. And and, and those who reject Jesus, those who want to live as if they're their own king, uh, they can't expect God to work all things together for their stories. God is about his story. Now once someone trusts in Jesus, however, and it could be at the end of their life, they could be 80 years old, 90 years old, 95. They could be 97 years old and have spent the first 97 years of their life rejecting Jesus, saying, I want nothing to do to him. And then all of a sudden, today, on September 27, 2020, they decide, because they're watching Facebook, 97 years old, watching Facebook. Good for them, right? They watch this video, and they go, I want to trust in Jesus. All of a sudden, they give their lives to Jesus, and all of a sudden, 97 years of rejecting Jesus, 97 years of sinning against God, sinning against other people, other people's sins against them. All of a sudden, all all that junk, all that crap, all that stuff that didn't make any sense, all that stuff gets transferred into this bucket called all things that God is now determined to work together, to sum up, to make Jesus shine brightly through that person for all of eternity in a very unique way. Nothing will get wasted. Nothing, nothing in that 97 years will get wasted when they decide, I'm going to trust in Jesus. All things, all things, all things. Look what it says in verse 30. Paul says, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What's he saying? If you're a Christian, it's because God came after you. He got a hold of your heart. And if he got a hold of your heart, and he opened your eyes to see Jesus and trust in him, he is committed to finishing the job of making you more and more like Jesus until you shine with the full glory of the Son of God through you as an heir, a co-heir with Jesus So, does everything happen for a reason? Here's how I'll put it. Everything works together for the reason, the ultimate reason, to make us more and more like Jesus. If we belong to Jesus. If we belong to him. So my question is, do you belong to him? Do you belong to Jesus? If you don't, if you haven't trusted in him, maybe you grew up believing in him. Maybe you grew up, you know, oh yeah, I know about Jesus. I've heard the stories. But you never gave your life to him. You never traded in your report card that you've been depending on. You never said, God, my good deeds, my church activity, falls short. Uh, It doesn't measure up to your glory. I'm taking hold of Jesus' report card. I'm trusting in that. That's the only thing I can boast in. if you haven't done that, I want to urge you to do that today. If you haven't done that, I want to urge you to trust in him today. Don't wait anymore. Don't waste any more time. Don't, 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 don't waste any more time. Uh, let me urge you to do that today. You know what it will mean? It will mean that there's going to be more trials and pain coming your way precisely because you trust in Jesus. But it will mean you get the first fruits of the Spirit that will be with you in the midst of that pain, in the midst of those trials it means that you yeah you're not going to escape the the brokenness of this world entirely just yet but it will mean that you get a special kind of spiritual authority that you get to stand against that and it won't get the better of you it won't it won't it doesn't have to cripple your joy and your peace it it, it will mean that you like the rest of the world are going to go through difficult circumstances but God is going to use it all to make you more and more like Jesus, more and more free from the things of this world, and more and more joyful. More and more joyful. That's what it's going to mean. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I want to urge you, do it. Don't put it off. Don't say, well, that was a nice thought. You know, that sermon got me thinking. Anyway, let me move on with my day. No, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't waste more time. Don't, don't, don't play those games. Don't move on. Decide today. You can click on that Get Connected button at the top if you're watching live on our website. Let us know. I want to trust in Jesus. Yo, I'll call you today. Leave your number. I'll call you today, Sunday, September 27th. Don't, don't move on. Don't just say this is thought-provoking. Don't, don't be content to say things like, well, I just want a little more God in my life. I hear people say that. Pastor Chris, you know, I know I got to get back to church. I need more God in my life. You don't get more God in your life by going back to church. You get more God in your life through Jesus and only through Jesus. That's what scripture says. That's, what, that's why Jesus had to die and, and that's him rising from the dead proves. You only get more God in your life through Jesus. So if you're like, ah, this, the religious stuff isn't working for me. The Christian stuff isn't working for me. It ain't going to work for you unless it's through Jesus. Unless it's you handing in your report card and saying, I need Jesus' report card. It's the only way it's going to work. Now, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been given the first fruits of the Spirit, then I want to challenge you with this question. Are you living like it? Are you living out of these promises? Are you living as one who is no longer condemned and therefore God is working all things together to make you more like... Are you, is, that, is that how you're living? Are you responding to trials and pain as if you really do have the first fruits of the Spirit? As if God truly is control, in control over all things. As if you really believe that our Father will work it out for your good. As if becoming more and more like Jesus really will lead to more joy. Is that how you're responding to things? Because listen, listen, listen. The common trials of life don't just automatically make us more like Jesus. They don't just come against us and make us more like Jesus automatically. We have to respond to them like those who love God and are called according to His purpose. If we belong to Him, then we will respond as those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So your car breaking down Everybody's car breaks down. It doesn't make you more like Jesus automatically. Big deal. But unless you decide in that moment, I'm going to respond to this out of worship. I'm going to trust God with this material possession. And I'm also going to look and see God, is there an opportunity here? Do you want me to shine with the light of Jesus to the mechanic, to the tow truck driver? That's choosing in that moment. Any trial, anything that comes our way, we have the opportunity to choose To respond in a way that honors Christ, our King, or to allow Satan, the accuser, to come in and snatch away that opportunity. Let me give you uh, another example. A single person getting up there in age, maybe in their late 40s, their 50s, and they're feeling like, man, am I ever gonna get married? they're feeling that angst. They're feeling that restlessness. I want to get married. I want to get married. A Christian and a non-Christian single person will both feel that angst. They both may even be tempted to compromise on their standards for who they would marry because they're getting up there. And, and they might be tempted to compromise and date and eventually marry somebody who's not really that healthy for them. But the follower of Jesus will choose to resist that temptation and go you know what no 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 no. my singleness my singleness is going to be used to worship jesus i am not going to uh, trade in my singleness that has the potential to honor jesus for a marriage that won't honor jesus i ain't doing that i ain't doing that that's what the single person will do Anything that comes our way, we have the opportunity to, to respond as somebody who loves God and is called according to his purpose. That's what it means to have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's what it means to be no longer un- under condemnation. We actually live by the Spirit. When those things come against us, we know, no, no, God's going to use this. But we don't just say, God, you know, use this and I'll be passive and I'll complain. No, we, we respond. We do our part. It's like two pedals on a bicycle. God promises, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna use this and combine it with everything else to make you more like Jesus. And we go, yes! Well, then I'm going to respond like Jesus. I'm going to respond by worshiping him. And it's two pedals on a bike that kind of push each other. I want to end the way Paul ends this chapter of Romans 8. and It's going to be a lead-in to a song by Michael Matt. I want you to think about whatever you're going through right now. The hardest thing about your life right now, is it the person you're married to? Is it not working? Is it the fact that you had to go back to work? Is it what? What? What is it? Is it is a relational pain? What is it? What is it? What is it? Think about it. Paul says this in verse 31 of chapter eight. He says, "What then shall we say to these things? What things? All the things that he All the promises that he's just been." declaring what shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all how will he not also with him freely give us all things he gave us a son Jesus died for us How is he not going to give us everything verse 33 who will bring a charge against God's elect God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. So the devil, the accuser, he can come against us and, and and try to condemn us. He can bring a charge against us. Satan, the accuser, can come and say, "Look, look, God, look at what Chris did last week." And he might be right that that was wrong. But then Jesus is interceding for us, going, wait a second. He's been justified. He's trusted in me. That doesn't even, that's gone. That's been forgiven. That's wiped away. That's gone out of here. Those charges have been erased, eradicated, canceled out because I've died for Chris, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? case is not clear. This is a rhetorical question. Paul gives us the answer a few verses later in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> nothing. He, I think he covered everything there. Things in creation, things in the spiritual world, things that exist that are coming against us right now, and things that are to come, that even haven't even come against us yet. They're going to come against us tomorrow. Paul's like, none of that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. For those who are wrapped up in Christ, there's nothing that can stop God's penetrating, pursuing, determined love, focused right on you to make you more and more like Jesus, freeing you from the things of this world, deepening your joy, deepening your peace. He is determined to do that. Let's respond today and this week out of worship, out of thankfulness for that promise, trusting that that's true. Because as we trust that that's true, It enables God's power to work even greater in our lives, to turn all things, summing them all up, to make us more like Jesus, the King. That's what it means to no longer be under condemnation. I pray that we would trust that Jesus. I pray that we would rest in that and that we would respond out of that. And I pray that those who haven't yet trusted that they would do it today, that they would let us know. Let the person who invited them to watch know, today, today's the day, I'm drawing a line in the sand, I'm trusting in Jesus. I want to be in Christ. I want to be in Christ. Let us know.